My guest today is an astronomer. She's a Hubble Fellow at the University of Texas at Austin. She's studying the formations of the first stars, studying large-scale effects that influence many halos, and just so many other really cool things. Please welcome Dr. Anna Schauer. Anna, how's it going? I'm doing fine. How are you? I am doing great. Doing great. Thanks so much for coming on to the podcast, Anna. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I, I'm excited to be here. Thank yeah. you so much for having me. Good. No, no problem at all. So let's jump right into this. <laughs> what do you do? Mm, so <laughs> I'm an astronomer and study how the first stars in the universe formed with simulations in my computer. Okay. Now, when did you start getting interested in sciences and in astronomy? So getting interested in sciences was very early on, I would say. So when you asked me in kindergarten what I wanted to become when I was uh, a grown-up, um, I told everyone that I wanted to be a math professor at university. Oh, wow. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Not the standard different. answer, I guess. Right, right. A little different, but okay. I like it. <laughs> yeah, I've basically loved uh, math and then later natural sciences um, forever, like as soon as I was introduced to them. Like astronomy, the first time was in high school. So okay. when I was maybe 15, 16, we had a really great uh, astronomy class. Uh, we went once per week to one of the higher buildings in Munich. They had a little observatory there with nice. um, telescopes. Uh, they partially constructed themselves. We had a great teacher and we just had like an observing night. Most of the time it was cloudy, but I didn't mind. I was really thrilled to do it. And yeah, I was basically when it started for astronomy. And then after finishing high school, I went uh, to university. I studied first physics in Munich. Then I did master's in physics and a master's in astrophysics, astrophysics uh, too. also both in Munich and then in Germany when you do your PhD you don't start after your bachelor's but you start after your master's and for that I moved to Heidelberg to the University of Heidelberg and this is when I first started doing research on the first stars as I'm doing now. Okay great and so your PhD and that's when you started studying the first, first stars and when they were formed. Mm -hmm. And you're doing your postdoc now, correct? Yes, yes. Okay. So I did my PhD in Heidelberg in three years. Then I stayed for half a year longer to do like a little bit of postdoc work. And then I moved to Austin, working at the University of Texas as a Hubble Fellow. So UT doesn't employ me directly, but I have this Hubble Fellowship uh, that's coming from NASA, which is really exciting. So first off, congrats on being <laughs> a you. Hubble Fellow. That is awesome. Um, and that was in 2018 when you received the news? Yes, I, yeah, I received it and I started in 2018. That is awesome. <laughs> now, your high school teacher that got you interested in this, do you remember the teacher's name? Uh, yes, Alexander Kraft. Okay, that's great. That's great. The teacher was such an inspiration for you and helped to get you where you are now, to jumpstart where you are now. Yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Mm -hmm. Now, you talk about studying how the first stars were formed. 
You led a team that's doing a, a study where you basically believe that there's a telescope idea that was scrapped a few decades ago would actually be able to actually use that to study the first stars, right? And you're talking before galaxies were even existed 13 billion years ago around that time. You're going to be able to study these stars. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Wow. Even a little bit earlier, um, dating mm. back, I would say 13.5 billion years. Wow. Yeah, so really to see those very first stars that formed after the Big Bang. So and how do you do that? Can you talk about how that works? <laughs> about how you're able to study how the first stars were formed using a telescope? Mm -hmm. So first, let me talk a little bit about the first stars and why those 500 yeah. million years really make a difference. So after the Big Bang, quickly thereafter, we only had hydrogen and helium really mm -hmm. available in the universe. And when we compare this to what we find on Earth, like, of course, there's hydrogen and helium, but there are so many more elements that are just present in the universe nowadays. And they don't only make a difference for like what we have here on Earth or that we can form life out of them, but they really have a fundamental difference also for the formation of stars. So stars form out of big gas clouds. And even if you have just a little bit of carbon or of dust, you change the way how you can form a star out of the gas cloud. Mm. This has to do with transitions that can take place in the elements. So basically you have a big puffy gas cloud. It needs to really collapse and become much, much, much denser than this gas cloud was to form a star. But as soon as you have gas that is collapsing, it heats up and then you have a very hot medium and that hot medium then keeps itself from collapsing. So in order to make it possible that this continues to collapse, you somehow need to get rid of this heat, this energy. And this you can do by different transitions. And therefore, it depends on which elements you have. And when you only have hydrogen and helium, it's much, much harder to radiate this energy, this heat away. So this is one really big difference and this makes the first stars, even though they only appeared for a very short amount of time, that makes them so different from the all later generations of stars. So our sun has a little bit of carbon and has elements even like it has iron, etc. So like the gas cloud out of which the sun formed is different than what the first stars formed out of. And therefore star formation is much harder when you go to this very first generation of stars that formed after the Big Bang. And now, because we are just a few hundred million years after the Big Bang, we didn't form stars yet. So we're really like per definition studying what those first stars are. Uh, we don't have big galaxies yet. Galaxies build up out of smaller galaxies or through inflow of gas and dark matter, but we really don't have those big structures yet. So all we have is smaller structures, like tiny galaxies, we call them mini halos. They're probably just like a few stars or maybe even one star only forms in this small galaxy. And therefore you have less stars that you can see. This means it is this tiny galaxy, this mini halo is emitting less light and therefore this object is much, much dimmer and harder to observe. And this is why you need a telescope that is really big so it can collect a lot of light and finally make those small amounts of stars visible. Got it. 
Okay. Wow. Okay. And I, I didn't know what the mini halos were. I knew that there was something that you were studying, but there's basically just tiny galaxies. From, um, okay. Yeah. All right. Astronomers have all kinds of different names. <laughs> right. The first stars, for example, we call them population three stars. Three stars. Yeah. Population yeah. three stars. Yep. <laughs> okay. It's kind of counterintuitive. So. <laughs> yes. Right. I know. <laughs> And then now the telescope that you are wanting to use, this is a solar powered telescope that will be on the moon mm -hmm. using a liquid mirror. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. How does that work? I know it's cheaper to <laughs> transport to the moon using the liquid instead of glass, but how does that work? Can you talk a little bit about that? Mm -hmm. So this telescope idea that we're hoping to revive from 12 years ago, is based on this liquid technology because it's much cheaper to transport less material to the moon than it would be to transport a massive mirror, even in segments to the moon, or to transport anything into space, like um, the James Webb telescope or the Hubble Space Telescope that are in space. We guess that it would be cheaper to build something on the moon and the thing with how it would work is when you rotate a fluid, it forms a parabolic shape. And this is exactly the shape that we need for a mirror. So we need to collect a lot of light. And then the telescope works that you have the light collected and it's focused onto a smaller area. So you have curved mirrors or curved lenses when you look at really old telescopes. And the spinning of the liquid, if you spin it, it forms this parabola shape. And this is like similar how you, when you have a cup of coffee and you stir it, you also see that the center drops down and right. the outside goes up. So by rotating a liquid, you form this shape, which is deeper in the center, higher up on the outer sides. Mm. Interesting. Wow. Okay. And then now how do you get the data from the telescope? So the telescope would need to not directly point in the direction of the sun because it needs to be dark. So we can't have just a solar power station directly next to the telescope. We would probably need something that goes out a little bit out of a crater, a dark crater. This could be powered. It will also point away from Earth. So then we would probably need a satellite that is orbiting the moon to then send the data to Earth. Wow. <laughs> okay. All right. And then now I know it's it's cheaper to use the liquid mirror, or I guess the liquid to transport there to make this mirror, but approximately how much would this cost, you know? I I think this is very hard to say. Yeah. I, <laughs> I really can't put a price label. I'm sorry. No, no, no. That's that's fine. I I figured so. I didn't see anywhere where it showed the cost, so I figured so. Yeah, All right. this is also a mission that we think would be probably like in construction 50 years from now or maybe launched 50 years from now. So oh, really? Okay. How the prices of all components will evolve, how the price of space travel will evolve that far into the future is hard to tell. Right. Right. So, wow. Okay. Now you also studied simulated elliptical galaxies. Can you talk about what that uh, is? <laughs> yes, this is um, dating far back to my master's project. Yep. <laughs> I did some research. 
<laughs> appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> and no problem at all. <laughs> so what astronomers have been doing for like the last, I think, 80 years by now is they try to recreate small portions of the universe in their computer so that they can better look at different angles and different properties and very different parameters um, to understand the fundamental physics of our universe better. And they also do this with galaxies. So our Milky Way is a galaxy. Um, it's a disk galaxy. It's a probably a spiral bar galaxy. And then there are other galaxies that are not so disk-like, but instead they are more poofed up. They're an elliptical galaxy. So that's really what the word is saying. It's, it's uh, not this clear disk structure with maybe a bulge in the center. So like a small spherical object with a lot of stars and then this disk, but instead the whole galaxy is not exactly spherical, but um, many stars and you can't identify this structure. And there are different theories how elliptical galaxies formed. And one very well-established one is that you form elliptical galaxies by having two of those spiral galaxies coming together through gravitational attraction. So you have two spiral galaxies that fly into each other. Then they do a little bit of swing by. So usually they cross through each other a few times. Wow. And in the end, like, you can imagine if you have two disks smashing into each other mm -hmm. out of stars, like those are not fixed disks. It's uh, stars that are just like flying in a circular orbit. So you will create a lot of chaos and you will form this big elliptical galaxy mm -hmm. out of this. Wow. It just seems like the job you have is something where you're just always learning. You're always learning and you're constantly learning, not just astronomy and what's out there in space, but also the technology that you use. And it just seems like things are always changing and always something new each day. Is that true? And how do you keep abreast on everything that's going on? Um, it, <laughs> yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Yeah. And the way to keep up with things yeah. is to listen to what other people uh, present as their research. Mm -hmm. So researchers are very connected. Um, we usually physically go to conferences. Oh, okay. um, or at the moment, we attend online conferences that are open, like the submission of presentations is open to everyone and once you're interested in a field and have worked in this field there are central web pages that register which conferences exist um, and then if you think something is appropriate uh, you can register as an attendee or you can register as a speaker and then usually the speakers that are most suitable for the conference are selected so then by attending those conferences hear those talks that are most appropriate for your topic and then every now and then there's like a really a breakthrough discovery that is not directly related to the field one works in so i pretty much know what's going on with first stars and first galaxies and supermassive black holes early in the universe i'm up keep up to date because i go to those conferences and because i read the archive we have an astronomy webpage where everyone mostly everyone puts their papers online and you can filter for keywords and then you can read what has been published recently so Those are the two things to keep up with your news in your field. And then when there's a really big discovery, like the direct imaging of the black hole or gravitational waves, 
usually someone you know knows someone you know who worked on this and there's a little bit of anticipation already before you discover this but then also we read it in the public news sometimes and when it's something really big and amazing um, usually we go together in our institute and just watch the press conference ourselves yeah. and i'm just super fascinated that's great so is there uh, besides the work that you you're studying and working on has there been anything out there recently that has just really blown your mind um i think gravitational waves are uh, just incredible it's uh, such a long endeavor to finally measure them because yeah. it's so hard to measure them because those fluctuations you're measuring are tiny compared to like what you're usually seeing so it's really really difficult and then just being able to do that and finding out about black hole mergers is just so fascinating like, that's awesome well you're <laughs> doing some cool stuff there at ut <laughs> and all over all right so can you talk about what a typical day looks like for you mm -hmm. so at the moment a typical they takes place uh, for me at home because uh, we're all remote. I don't work in instrumentation, so I don't need to physically be at UT. So I get up in the morning, not at 7 a.m., but a little bit later. And then after a short breakfast, I usually go to my desk. I have a to-do list that is growing with me that I carry from day to day. I try to do a little bit of administrative tasks. So answering emails, yeah, like talking to my colleagues in like either a completely social way or in a semi-social way through like evaluation of applicants, uh, things like these. I try to get this done more or less in the morning, try to find which the research project is that I want to work on that day, get that a little bit started um, before lunch. Then I take a lunch break and then I try to really get into my research project. And that can mean three things usually. One is reading the literature that's associated with that in detail. So for that, I like to print out the appropriate paper and I go through it and I underline and highlight and everything what is appropriate for my project. I write down many questions uh, on the border of these pages. The other thing is really being with my simulations. So uh, at the moment I have a huge data set and um, I check for certain objects in this data set. So for that I log onto my computer, which is at UT, which has stored all my data. And I write uh, small programs, usually in Python. Sometimes I, I don't write a program, but I just use a console and look at the data in a little bit a more raw fashion. And then I spend some time writing some preliminary analysis programs. For example, I want to find out how massive the mini halos in my simulation are that have a certain property. So then I need to go through all my data. It's way too much to look at it by eye. So I need an automated search routine. I try to find the appropriate one that is quite fast. And then I either results printed out because I print out statements into this little programs that I write, or I produce some images. Then I usually download those images onto my laptop because faster to see images on a laptop than 
when I try to, for each image, um, try to look at it virtually on my UT computer. And I look at those and I try to identify if what I think is there, if it's really there, if I can verify that through those plotting and analysis routines. Once I'm a little bit further into a project, I try to polish my plots. So I make sure that I have a nice set of colors for the data that I want to show, that it's colorblind friendly, that you could read it when you print it out on a black and white printer. So like doing those tiny tweaks when I'm happy with the content, then I go to make it better readable because I want people to easily understand from my plots what I'm doing. And then the third part is already tied to that, that is writing down a scientific publication. I usually try to do this a little bit alongside with a project so that not after finishing the project, I have to go back to all the side notes on the literature that I read, but that while I read this, if something really stands out to me, I already put it into the text while I work on the data analysis. And when I produce a nice plot, I already put it in a raw version into a future scientific publication. And the text evolves around that. Yeah, so reading, analyzing, and writing are the three main tasks that I do. And usually I focus on one or maximum two on my focused afternoon research time. Okay. All right. And then also in that, you mentioned some administrative tasks or uh, answering emails. So that part of it, was that a surprise to you having to do much of that? or And if not, were there any surprises to you once you became an astronomer that you just didn't think of having to do? <laughs> there were no big negative surprises, I would say. Okay. I did not fully think actively about that if I want to travel somewhere, of course, I need to fill out a travel application. I need to find the correct flight to go somewhere, but it's not like a big, right. a big shocker. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> now, how much programming do you do? So, yeah, I would say a third, a half of my time is, oh, okay. is doing that. Okay. Okay. So um, a really good portion of it. All right. Yeah, yeah. If you count, then also like looking at the pictures created, then I need to like, it's a constant switching back and forth. I want to find something out. So then I come up with an idea what I could put into a plot, what I could put into a figure. Then I produce this figure. Then I realized that I have made the x-axis in the wrong scaling. So then I immediately jump back to writing and correcting that uh, bug and then it's, it's reprocessed. So, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. And so just listening to all that you do, it seems like for your skill sets, just being a team player, team working, programming skills, of course, analytical skills, communication skills, your, your written and your oral are important. seems like they're important for what you do. But I guess in your words, what skills and characteristics would you say are most important to be a successful astronomer? So one thing in addition to like what you said is all true. In addition to that, I would say is the capability to quickly jump on a thought. And if you hear the science from others and you heard one presentation about one topic and then you heard a different presentation about a different topic and then to have the capability to connect them and to think how you could make a third project out of that um, 
how you can put things together to create something new that advances our understanding. I think this quick awareness and I think it's an analytical skill to connect those different things together. Yeah. And then knowing which comes a little bit with experience is what is feasible and what is really interesting and to follow up on that. So there are many, many, many things one could be doing, but to really filter out what is the important things that we can do. Um, and another task, uh, another skill I would say is perseverance. So there are many days where you try to write a program and somehow you just can't find the right function and you're stuck for some time, but to then not give up, but to push through it. Yeah. This pushing through is uh, quite important. <laughs> yeah, I would think, yeah, it makes sense. And you know, this is one question I want to ask about the stars. How long do stars normally last before they end up being a, I think it's a red dwarf or a white dwarf? How long do they last? Um, so for stars, it depends on how massive they are. Uh, we usually measure things in terms of uh, the mass of the sun. Mm -hmm. So if we measure things as one solar mass, this is a star that is as massive as our sun. And if it's stars that have a mass similar to our sun, they live fairly long. They live, I think, 10 billion years, roughly. And then when you go to bigger stars, more massive stars, they live much shorter because then their properties in the center change and they burn their fuel, their hydrogen and the higher elements afterwards, they burn it much faster. So those stars are shorter lived. And they turn to, and I said red dwarf, but, uh, it's a red giant, I think it turns to, correct? Um, yeah, so out. the sun undergoes an evolutionary phase and after some time it will turn into a red giant. So it will... Mm -hmm become very poofed up, very big. Um, probably the surface will be pushed out roughly to the radius of the Earth. And afterwards, it will shrink massively and it will be a white dwarf. Right. So then only the center remains and you have a small star again that is very dim. Mm. Um, and the first stars, we think, on the much more massive end. So the first stars of this formation channel that it's harder to form stars of this gas cloud that only consists of hydrogen and helium. We think that then the stars that end up forming also stay a little bit bigger. So then we think that those stars might have a hundred times the mass of the sun. And those are much shorter lived right. because they burn their fuel faster. Right. Even though they have much more, they still burn it so much faster that they end up being shorter lived. And this is why we don't see those first stars when we look around in our own galaxy. Mm. Otherwise we would need to see stars that are only composed out of hydrogen and helium, but we so don't see them. So this is an, an additional indicator apart from the theory side that those stars are way bigger than our sun. Okay. Now, besides those stars, the population three stars or stars composed of hydrogen and helium, compared to other stars, is our star closer to the smaller side? Um, so I would say for stars that form nowadays, it's a fairly average star. Okay, average. All right. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, compared to a population three star, it's it would be a surprisingly low mass star. All right. 
<laughs> so it's just so fascinating to me. Okay. All right. Now you you went to undergrad, got a bachelor in science related field in physics. You mentioned you got your two masters, physics, astrophysics, and PhD. Is that the normal route for someone that's looking to be an astronomer? Yes, at least um, in Europe. In the US, the PhD is longer and the master is built into this, mm. basically. Like there are a few exceptions, uh, but if you're looking at uh, the US system, uh, you usually have a um, bachelor's degree, I think, with majoring in astronomy, or if astronomy isn't available, majoring in physics, maybe minoring in astronomy. And after that, it's five or six year PhD, and on the way, the master is obtained. In Europe, it's a little different. The master system is quite new to Europe. So before that, it was one degree that was equivalent to the master's degree. So what very often happens is that you do your bachelor's degrees and your master's degree at the same university, and then you switch university to obtain your PhD. And your PhD is usually three to five years shorter than the US PhD. Okay. Yeah. All right. And now from Germany to Texas, Austin, Texas. So yes. <laughs> what's that transition been like for you? Different cultures, weather, everything. How's that transition been like? <laughs> I like it a lot here. Oh, so. good. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm from Munich, Munich, um, Bavaria, and I find uh, Bavaria quite similar to Texas. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, like here you go to eat barbecue, uh, <laughs> Back home, you eat Schweinebraten, which is a giant pork roast. <laughs> mm. So, yeah, I really enjoy being here. The weather is quite different, though. So <laughs> Much warmer when, here? Yes, so yeah. much warmer. Yeah. When I tell my mom that I'm outside in a t-shirt in January, she sends me pictures ah. uh, uh, covered in snow. So, <laughs> mm. And have you been able to take advantage of all the things that's available out there in Austin to do? the outdoors uh, uh, kayaking and uh, yeah it's a lot. Oh. Okay. nice <laughs> i like kayaking um and a little bit hiking around town yep. like i really love the river walk down down in austin and mm -hmm. like when things go back to normal i can't wait to go two-stepping again oh nice <laughs> <laughs> and a college football game or basketball game have you been able to do that Yes, I went to several basketball games of the women's team. I really liked them. Oh, that's great. <laughs> that is great. Uh, college, is, uh, college football is still on my list. <laughs> oh, you have to do that. You have to. <laughs> Are you a football fan? A uh, huge football fan. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you, you'll love it. It's a, it's a great environment, a good atmosphere. It's a lot of fun going to mm -hmm. the college football games. <laughs> especially especially in Austin at UT. So. <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> now, talking about things that you love that I do, uh, college football, but what, what do you love about what you do? Oh, I really love about it that it's like so curiosity-driven mm -hmm. um, that an exchange between the experts around the world were just united by their sheer love for science, for finding out more about the universe. Um, it doesn't matter where you're coming from. It's just we are all trying to figure uh, the universe out uh, together. Um, 
I really like the kind of puzzling aspect um, of it. So in the day-to-day -day life, you try to make sense of uh, what do you actually see in your simulations. So it's like a little bit like nonstop puzzle solving. That's also just very enjoyable. I love that, the puzzle solving and trying to come up with a solution, basically. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I like that. I like that part of it. Now, what, what about on the flip side? What challenges are out there for you? So challenges are um, like one further advantage is that you're um, changing every few years and you're moving from continent to continent and uh, you gain many great experiences. But that can also be a challenge that you're relocating. You find a permanent position quite late into your career. So it can be challenging to then move everything to a different country, continent, city, so that that can sometimes be hard to yeah, yeah. start new over like every few years. Yeah. Now, and I'm guessing the pandemic also has been very challenging. You mentioned the conferences that you went to, to just to learn about what's new or the latest things mm -hmm. that is out there. And I know there's virtual ones, but I, I guess it's got to be very different than being able to rub shoulders with your colleagues and talk to them and just the teamwork that you're having to do with your colleagues. So I know that has to be kind of a challenge as well. Yeah. Yeah, that definitely is a challenge. So usually a lot of great ideas, we just have them in coffee breaks. You mm. walk up to the person who gave a talk or has a poster that is really interesting and you start chatting um, and we're all very friendly and uh, want to just work together and make the most out of uh, our science time. And sometimes great ideas come from that. Um, and that's really hard to keep up with only online meetings. Right. We're trying by setting up um, like different chat channels, but it's harder to spark this conversation. Or sometimes you just drag on or you just follow a group who goes to lunch somewhere where you like wanted to go, but you don't know the people yet. And then it's much easier to then introduce yourself and present your science and pitch your ideas and hear their ideas than just cold calling someone uh, you don't know in, in an online chat where you don't have this like in-person interaction that goes well with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think moving to the future, it would be good to have a combination of those meetings. The positive side, of course, is that we are not flying around the world constantly. So we are not blasting much CO2 into the atmosphere. So that's a positive side. But I definitely miss those in-person interactions a lot. Mm. Where you develop your ideas, where you strengthen your collaborations. Yeah. So that's interesting. You bring up blasting CO2 in the air. What about we're sending people or things to the moon or want to, to be able to study just stars or anything else, but let's say other countries want to do the same. Could there be any type of damage to the moon for, you know, us going out there and, and trying to study other parts of space, but going on a moon, which may not be set up for us to do these sort of things? Mm -hmm. Um so, so far as we know, there are no life forms on moon. Right. Um, <laughs> so we wouldn't be harming like any like living being. I think right. that makes it easier. We also wouldn't want to really introduce um, any kind of bacteria or microbes. But I think if this is handled with care, it can be prevented. Got you. Okay. All right. 
Uh, just curious. This is something I just thought yeah, of. Absolutely. Just, the, uh, <laughs> just how important the moon is uh, for Earth and just thinking if anything could happen to it. Yeah. And I think I'm watching too much uh, TV as well. So <laughs> no, I don't yeah. think that like building a telescope on the moon could then change the orbit of the moon. Oh, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> That's very unlikely. <laughs> right. All right. Now, do you have any memorable moments in your career that stick out to you? <laughs> I had a small Eureka moments um, when, like, after a long time really working on a problem, something finally became more clear. Or the moments I like, especially, is when I come up with a new project idea mm-hmm. and then I think a little bit more about it and I get really excited about it. Mm. <laughs> at first it's more like a little bit crazy idea and then I let it simmer into in my head for a little bit longer and if it passes the first sanity tests in my head then I can get very excited and want to start working on it right away you, when your program ch- run can, can't run fast enough because you already want to know what's in your simulation data output <laughs> yes <laughs> you're a true problem a solver <laughs> yeah, that really excites you, the problem solving. And I, and I think that's why in, in kindergarten you wanted to be uh, in math because it's, it's all about solving problems. And when you do, that, that is just so exciting. And I think you're just yeah. a very true problem solver. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, you condense it very well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well. I guess being a NASA Hubble fellow has to be a very big moment as well in your life. Absolutely. I was thrilled and <laughs> I was in disbelief for a full week. Uh, <laughs> was that an email or a phone call? How'd you find out about it? I was, uh, yeah, it was an email that was sent to me. At first they had put me on the wait list and I was like, oh, nobody <laughs> is going to decline a Hubble fellowship. Then, but then apparently someone did and I got the offer and I just couldn't believe it. Like, <laughs> I wouldn't tell anyone for a few days because I didn't believe it. <laughs> oh, believe I'm really it. honored. Yeah. That's great. Hmm. Wow. All right. And now, do you have any advice for people getting into astronomy? Mm-hmm. So I think forming a good peer group is important. So when you have those moments where you really need to push through and persevere, um, it's easier if you know they are not the only one doing that. Not being too scared of programming. Like I find it much easier to learn those skills when you have a real problem to solve. So like not being too pushed away by like, oh no, I have to use a computer and like really dig into like use a programming language not only a a computer so Mm. like don't be too afraid of that yeah like try to find out what about astronomy you're interested in and then try to follow that interest and questions that arise ask them to your professors yeah i think like focus when you're in high school i guess focus on your natural science skills, so math and physics. Uh, and if you have the opportunity for astronomy, that's great. Like, follow that, especially for math. I think it's a lot of training that makes it useful. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, that's great. Uh, math and science. I know a lot of high schools might not have astronomy, but like you said, but you're right. Math, physics, it uh, makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, Anna, we're at the end of this interview. Thank you so much. This was fun. Oh, great. Great. Good. <laughs> I'm glad you liked it. We're going to head over to this quick hitter session where I'm going to ask you some uh, questions for fun. But before I do that, though, I want to see if there's anything that you think that maybe I left out or something additional that you would like to talk about. Mm, I think you covered a lot. So good. Good. Great. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> oh, yeah. No problem. Thank you. All right. So let's go to this quick hitter session. First question. What is your favorite sports team? <laughs> the Dallas Mavericks. Oh, wow. Okay. All right. Luka, Luka Doncic and the Mavericks. All right. Oh, formerly Otsum Dirk Nowitzki. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. You're right. I cut out um, newspaper articles when I was a teenager. Yeah, he was the man. He was the man. <laughs> <laughs> Favorite movie or show? Mm. Tony Erdmann. Hmm. It's a German movie that came out like a little bit more than a year ago and it uh, features one of my favorite uh, actresses. So. Okay. <laughs> All right. A favorite musical artist or group? Um, musical or music? Say, sorry, say it again. I like uh, Sweet Spirit. They are from Austin. Okay. All right. So you're a Texan already. I like it. <laughs> Mavericks are your favorite team and your sweet, what's it called? Sweet, what? Sweet spirit. And sweet spirit's your favorite. All right. Uh, favorite vacation spot? Italy. Yes. Oh, man. Yep. <laughs> and any part in particular in Italy? I love Sicily. I also love Florence or Rome. Like, basically it's everywhere. Yeah. It's just great. <laughs> Chikatera? Yes, yes, yeah. Paul, yeah. <laughs> uh, Good favorite, for hiking. Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> beautiful sights there. Favorite food or drink? Mm, I love pasta in all variations. <laughs> nice, all right. So, and then for movies, and, oh, sorry, go ahead. And Wiener Schnitzel, which is oh, traditional. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then for, for movies, are there any movies dealing with or shows dealing with space that you really liked that you really thought that they did their homework and they did a good job? Mm, so that's not exactly dealing with space correctly, but I do like Star Wars. Oh, yeah. <laughs> my, my son just got into it and uh, had to buy in some lightsabers. So every day we've been fighting lightsabers with lightsabers. <laughs> <laughs> In one of the groups I worked in, one of the astronomers was such a huge Star Wars fan. One day we couldn't find a pointer, so he ran to his oh. office and got his lightsaber. We could use it as a pointer. That is awesome. Astronomers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Many Star Wars fans. Yes. Well, hey, Anna, this has been great. I learned a lot. I learned tons with this. It's been fun. And I love just a problem solver in you. And it's just fascinating all the things that you're working on and will be working on. And just want to say congrats for all that you've done so far and have accomplished. And go figure out the universe for us. 
<laughs> Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure being here. I wish you all the best luck with your podcast. Oh, thank you so much. That means a lot to me. <laughs> And thank you for being on the podcast. Also, if yeah, uh, people good. have any... Good, good. And then if people <laughs> have any uh, questions or comments for you, is there a way that they can reach out to you? Mm -hmm. So I have a webpage that's called minihalos.com or they could also reach me under my email address, which is Anna dot shower at utexas.edu great all right well thanks a lot anna have a good one <laughs> thank you you too <laughs> take care thank you everyone if you have any comments or questions or would like to be in the podcast please reach out to me on instagram at rodolfo cooper thank you bye